Okay. Questions, thoughts, complaints, a haiku, anything? My, the man with the microphone is standing by. You might have asked, answered this last Sunday, but it, you can't, can you just make a blanket statement, all rich people? I mean, I know people that have a lot of money, and boy, they sure seem like strong Christians to me. Oh, we're going to get an example of somebody in chapter 19, it was Zacchaeus. The point, the point is not, rich people are really hard to save, poor people are easy. The point is, in their culture, you're taking the best guy you've got, the guy who seems to be most blessed of God, moral, good guy. Your best people is impossible. And the logic where they answer, then who can be saved? It's not, oh, poor people can be saved. That, that's totally doable. But rich people, it takes God. That's not what Jesus is saying. The, the blank is, is impossible for anyone. Um, for salvation, the, the change of a human heart, the removing of the veil, only God can do that. Um, so, Because think about what Jesus is saying to this man. It doesn't cost anything. The only, the only um, prerequisite is desire. You have to want it. You have to desire eternal life. You have to want Jesus Christ. You have to love him. You have to want to give yourself to him in faith, right? How do you, do, how do you love what you don't love? How do you stop loving money? I mean, I think that's where a lot of people wrestle with, you know. Uh, it's, it's like the demons. They're terrified of judgment. The demons believe in God and tremble. They don't love him. And so he's looking at his money, and his money is weightier to him than Christ. And, and you don't have to be rich to be covetous. But you can be poor and covetous, um, so the, the point isn't there's different classes of people. Some are harder, some are easier. The point is, let's take the best case scenario you got, this rich, moral, religious young man. Yeah, it's easier for Cam to go through the avenue than for him. And that's exactly what the crowds pick up. Well, then who can be saved? If this guy, if that's that hard for him, then we're even, the assumption actually is it's going to be harder for us who aren't, in, from their perspective, who aren't in as privileged or as good a position. So... Yeah, I mean, but, but there is a sense, no, but there is a sense in which, um, I was talking to Mitchell about this last week, so on the one sense, it's binary, either God removes the veil or he doesn't, either you're dead and blind and deaf or you're not, but there does also, though, seem to be that sort of spectrum that in, in some sense you can biblically speak of as harder for rich people. The poor generally are closer to being humbled, closer to being um, childlike, and that's, I think, also taught biblically, which is, I'm not sure how that, those two things fit together, but they both seem to be true. Jesus has woes on the rich earlier. The book of James, same thing. Um, woe to you who are rich now, you, the greedy, covetous rich. You, you get the idea that the God of money is a powerful and enslaving God and master. Um, but in, in the context of the rich young man here, I think Jesus is making the point it's impossible. This type of counting the cost, this type of forsaking everything for Jesus can't humanly be done unless God gives it. So does that, that make sense? Okay. Other thoughts, questions? I thought you had something, Mitchell. You still working on it? Okay, now he's ready to go. He's got it. Mitchell's got it. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that uh, the law is preached to the proud and grace is proclaimed to the humble. Could you talk about uh, 
the usage of the law on First Timothy one seven to ten. Or I guess it would be verses eight to uh, ten. First Timothy one seven through ten. It, well, it would be verses eight to ten. Eight to ten. Okay. Specifically. Sure. Let's read it to begin with. Um, I want to start in verse 3, though. So, remember we said earlier in the message that Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to set things in order in case he got delayed. Sometimes these books are called the pastoral epistles. I think that's a bit of a misnomer. Timothy is not a pastor. Uh, Timothy is a young man. As far as we can tell, he's not married. He's Paul's representative, and this letter gives him the authority to act. So it's just the, they call them the pastoral epistles because the apostolic delegate um, proxy epistles doesn't really roll off the tongue so smoothly. But the things that Timothy and Titus are called to do, I don't think anyone has the authority to do. Titus was told single-handedly appoint elders. Which, which person living today has that authority to go from church to church appointing elders? Um, no one I know of. So this letter serves in function to authorize Timothy to do what he's doing. Because Paul's going to tell him right here, I want you to shut some people down. Some people are teaching some stuff and they need to stop. Timothy goes, stop them. If I'm delayed, I I would stop them, but since I might be delayed, you stop them. Um, And so here's the first charge he gives Timothy in verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless, disobedient, for the ungodly, for sinners, for the unholy, for the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So these guys are not using the law properly. They're getting caught up in myths and genealogies, and I mean, and this is always alive. I got friends of mine today that are finding Bible codes in the, in the Old Testament, and you take the Hebrew words and you connect them with numbers, and you find hidden messages. There's nothing new under the sun, and they're like, no, <laughs> that's that's not what it's for. What the law is for is, I believe, to expose, identify, or at least what he's highlighting here, and I think this is consistent with what I'm saying, is to expose, reveal, identify sin. Turn, turn to Romans seven. I, I, he, Paul. We'll speak to this a little further. Um, In Romans 7, the Apostle Paul begins by declaring that you and I, if you're in Christ, died to the law so that you could be joined to Christ. And then Paul anticipates a series of questions um, based on that, which go along the lines of, well, so does that mean the law was bad? No, the law wasn't bad. And let's work through them, because as he answers them, he helps us understand what the law could and could not do. So Romans 7, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. 
For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's freed from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers. Hold on a sec. I got something in my throat. Okay. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. First rhetorical question. He anticipates, what then shall we say that the law is sin? If the law has this effect of arousing sin in me, is the law wicked? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So there's, there's, this, there's two sides to it. On the one hand, you get to see what's good and what's bad, but everyone who's had children knows that the surest way to get a kid to touch something is to say, don't touch that. Right? And so on the one hand, he says, I wouldn't have known about coveting. It's, it's interesting. The conscience can reveal a lot of God's law, but Paul at least says he would never have come to the conclusion coveting was wrong if he hadn't read the 10th commandment, and yet the very act of reading the 10th commandment aroused coveting in him. So that's, that's part of, so the law here reveals sin. Um, verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, producing me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. What he's saying is this, there's a very real sense in which if you can perfectly keep God's law, you'll have life. Now, good luck with that. That's absolutely true. And so the law says, this is what the Lord God requires, do it and live. And you're supposed to leave you like the tax collector going, I, I, I can't do that. You got anything else? I need grace. You're not supposed to look at that and go, I think with a little work I can do that, which is sadly what the Pharisees had come to that conclusion. So the law is supposed to show you the measuring standard, and at the same time, it incites sin, it arouses it, and hopefully it leads you, well, keep reading 7. I think you'll see where it's supposed to get you to. Um, so then he anticipates the next rhetorical question. Um, in verse 13. Okay, so the law is not sin. What then? Did that which is good then bring death to me? Did the law make me a sinner? No. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might, here's again the use of the law, might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. And then here comes that great debated passage in Romans 7. And the debate is, is Paul speaking of his Christian experience or his pre-Christian experience? I tell you, I don't, and I don't want to get sidetracked on this the rest of the time, I think that misses the whole point. Um, the point here, I think, I'll suggest to you, is we're about to read a picture of sanctification by law. Here's what the law can and cannot do, okay? I'm going to suggest to you what we're about to read is a picture of sanctification by law. Which, as a believer, if you try to obey God in your own strength, not by his grace, is your experience. Um, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I 
do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So here's what I suggest is the point. The law comes along and gives you this target, this bullseye, this standard. And you can agree with it. You can say, that's good. But the law gives you no power to actually do it. So the law just basically can beat you because you want to do it, but it gives you no help in doing it. So the law says, here's what you got to do. Here's what God requires of you. And you can go, that, that seems good. But the law gives you no help in doing it. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in my, me that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. The law can tell you what's right to do, but the law cannot in any way help you do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, sounding a lot like the tax collector. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So if all God gave us was his law, this is all we could ever expect, an impotent, frustrated, tortuous existence where we want to do one thing and sin pulls us the other way. Keep reading and you see the cure, the solution to that problem. So Paul is putting forward what the law can and cannot do. It is able to show sin as sinful. It's able to reveal God's righteousness, and it can't help you one bit in doing it. Verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's this new principle of law. It's the law of the spirit. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf for us. We couldn't do it. He did. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. And that the short answer is what you need is God's spirit. The law is good as far as it goes. You need the spirit. And in order to receive the spirit, you need to be killed from the law and joined to Christ. That's the logic of the flow of Romans. So again, I think it, 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 um, whether or not you take my reading of Paul's state, what can the law do? It can show me sin. It can reveal my wickedness and even incite my sin. It can't help you keep it. Uh, and the Pharisees thought they could. That, that ultimately is, is that the one where you're going or am I just, okay. Okay. Any other questions? It's messy. It's messy. Yeah. Any other questions? Well, you had plural questions, Mitchell. Oh, you want somebody else to go. Oh, Allison. I don't have a question, but Bridget, I don't know if you were going to ask him because I saw you giggle. I'd like to know how you wash hair with feet. Fair enough. Fair enough. Put that one right up there with the tomato tree and some of my other guffaws. No, 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 yes, no, no, yes, no, no. Allison, yeah. 
This is from Greg. Um, <gasps> from Greg? He's downstairs, so he couldn't okay. ask. It's a in regard. question. Yes. <laughs> it's in regard to the relationships. And so the mother, father, sister, brother, son, daughter within the household of God, he wanted to know how we would tr treat that in regard to husbands and wives. That's a good question. <laughs> um, and there, that imagery, I mean, we're never told treat your peers like your wives. And so in every instance, it doesn't work perfectly. Now, it's entirely possible in the church you'll meet your spouse. That's possible. Um, I, I think in both Jesus' usage in chapter um, 9, who's my mother, my father, and my brother, it, it, you're using an all-encompassing category, um, fa every family relationship possible, but um, beyond, yeah, I don't see anything, unless, unless mm, that's probably stretching it, unless the notion of the church is the bride of Christ, but that seems stretching it some. I, I, there is no corollary in the church for husband or wife in interpersonal relationships, unless they're your actual husband or wife. Um, let me say that clearly. So that's a good question. I don't have a great answer beyond the, the ramblings I just gave. Tell Greg five points. He stumps me. That's good. <laughs> Anybody else? Anybody else? Mitchell, back on the mic. Uh, this question is about exaltation, uh -huh. and uh, my my question is just that you would expand on what that means, but in light of two passages, my interpretation on the first passage might be wrong, so please correct me if I am wrong. First Peter chapter 5. Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. And my assumption is that exaltation is linked to verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will do four things. And that exaltation is linked to sharing in the eternal glory in Christ. And the other passage? Yes, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4, by which he has uh, the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So, what does exaltation mean in accord with the eternal glory in Christ and becoming partakers of the divine nature? Well, I think the exaltation, in its first instance, is that God is not a called, ashamed to call you his children. That God welcomes you into his household. Let me, let me answer it from Luke. Go back to chapter 14. If you remember, that's where Jesus goes to the dinner party at the Pharisee's house, and first he watches them play musical chairs as they're trying to figure out where do I sit because I want the most honor and respect, but I don't want someone to, I don't want to overestimate, get kicked down because that'd be embarrassing, and he, he rebukes them. Then he rebukes the host because he only invites rich people and he doesn't invite the poor. And then somebody sitting back says, um, where is this, um, 15, 
one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things. He said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. By implication, clearly this Pharisee thinks, well, that includes us. Whether at the top of the table, bottom of the table, hey, we're all getting into the kingdom. And Jesus has news for them. Um, he tells them the story about the, the homeowner who was throwing a banquet and he invited people, sent out the first invitation, and presumably these people said yes. And then when it's time for the banquet, he sends out his messenger, now's the time come. And all those people who said they'd come don't, right? And so pick it up in uh, verse 21. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, blind, and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you've commanded has been done, and there still is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges, compel people to come in, that my house may be fulfilled. For I tell you, none of those who are invited shall taste my banquet. So here he's giving this honor to these have nothings, the poor, the blind, the, the outsiders, and those people who'd originally received the honor being cast down. So I think in the first instance, the exaltation is you get to call God your father. You get to become his child. You get to come. Be we, a few moments ago, just came before the throne of God in prayer. What a privilege is that? Moreover, regularly in this life, we say that same principle at work. The scripture's full of stories of God humbling the proud, God exalting the humble, right? So you think of Nebuchadnezzar on his wall. You think of Mary, um, mother of Jesus, and her Magnificat about how God has exalted her from her lowly estate. And so these divine reversals are common in life. So I expect to see that principle happening now. It's very possible that God here and now will exalt you if you're humble. And it's entirely possible that here and now, God will cast you down if you're proud. But there are proud people who go to their death proud. Think of Stalin, right? I mean, we don't always see people's comeuppance here and now. We do frequently. Um, but we can be assured that ultimately and eternally, that principle plays out perfectly. So I think in this first instance, it's the, the exaltation of being received into receiving the inheritance of the kingdom and eternal life, of entrance into the family of God, where Jesus would identify you, that's my mother, that's my brother, that's my sister, that's my son, as he did earlier in Luke. And then the general principle that God exalts the humble regularly in this life. Okay? Other questions? Zach. Um, when Jesus is, tells the ruler to sell all his possessions and give to the poor, uh, I've read some like books or things that said kind of made it seem like they didn't like outright say everyone needs to do that, but kind of made it seem like if you're really following God, you'll do that too. You'll sell all your possessions. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was thinking from your sermon that um, what is more meaning is kind of a generalized whatever is keeping you from following Christ, you need to get rid of that and you need to surrender everything to him rather than a specific, if you're following Christ, you need to sell all your possessions. And because um, just sometimes it's hard of like, well, I'm not selling all my possessions. So does that mean the guy who did right. is more holy than me? Or, right. you know, I could always give more money. Right. Where's that balance and feeling guilty and that kind of thing? That's a great question. It's a, uh... I think we got time, but that's, it's going to take a slightly nuanced answer. The short answer is this. What Jesus demands in chapter 14 is renouncing your possessions, a willingness to give up whatever God's calling on you for. 
Um, now, we, some people have tried to get out of this sort of a communistic, Marxist reading of the Christian life, going to like Acts 2, where people are selling their possessions. But in Acts 5, where Ananias and Sapphira attempt to deceive Peter, Peter, well, go to Acts 5, let's see it. Um, we make, it's clear that this, this, whatever you want to call it, commune, was all voluntary. It was not enforced. Um, so in Acts 5, Peter said, verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourselves part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So Peter is not saying, yes, you had an obligation and you needed to give this money. The whole point of the argument there is, look, it was optional, man. It was yours. You didn't have to give it. So why'd you lie about it, right? Now, at the same time, tons of people were doing it. So the, the, the danger is, it's not, like every Christian does not need to sell everything they have and give to the poor. But I would suggest probably more of us need to do something like that than we probably are, just from the example we get in the New Testament. So are we absolutely obligated to do that? No. But, but then go to 2 Corinthians, because the other principle is this. God doesn't want to guilt us into giving. He wants to um, ravish us into giving. He wants to um, get us to see the beauty in giving. So it's, it's more the notion of as we're giving, we're seeing what God's doing. We're seeing the goodness we receive from it. We see what he's, what he's being accomplished through it and the blessings we get, and then we want to do it more. So Paul is on a fund, he's, he's an interesting fundraiser. He's on a fundraising mission. He went out on his missionary journey, and as he went out, there were pledges made, commitments from people, and he's now getting ready to head back. He's getting ready to go back through Corinth, and he addresses this issue in 2 Corinthians 7, um, no, 8. Um, and he starts by telling them about the Macedonian church. And again, we get more principles for giving. So you get, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So he sees this as a grace of God. God's graced them. To what effect? They had joy, poverty, and they gave. That's the grace of God. The evidence of the grace is that combination. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, if you're a fundraiser, at what point do people have to beg you to give? I'm assuming Paul said something like, guys, that's enough, stop. You can't afford anymore. And they're not doing it because they're being guilted and beaten on their backs by a rod, like, oh, no, we're not holy. They're doing it in joy. There's a joy they're getting in this. Um, and so they're like, no, 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 Paul, we want more. We want more part of this. And so Paul puts that up as a model. Again, not a guilt, not of beating people into it. And accordingly, we urge Titus. Um, okay, then, then he turns to them, verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command. So there's this opportunity. Hey, I'm an apostle. I write scripture. Give. Say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. So there's a sense in which if you're not giving, you prove your love is not genuine. 
but I can't tell you how much to give or where to give or who to give. So an absence of giving proves the ingenuineness or the, the, the uh, not genuine, if it's not genuine, it's the disingenuine, the fake pseudo, pseudo okay, thank you. I got an ongoing thesaurus right here. Fantastic. Um, it proves the, the falsity of your love, but he won't command them, okay? Um, so this is this tightrope because the danger, if you just say, no, it's not a command, the people are like, great, I can keep my money. But what you do with your money shows your heart. So Paul's telling them, prove the genuineness of your heart. For we know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. And then notice, he doesn't threaten them. He puts a carrot in front of them. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also desire to do it. Now he's referencing a year ago when he was visiting them, and people said, yeah, I'll get. he's raising money for the Jerusalem church because Agabus prophesied a, a famine and their church is already persecuted. This so with the famine, that's just going to make it worse. And so part of what Paul's doing is, hey, there's a lot of Christians back in Jerusalem who are suffering. I'm trying to raise money to alleviate their suffering. And these people are like, yeah, we want to give to that. That seems good to us. We want part of that. And he said, okay, when I come back, on my way back, I'll collect the money. Right? Um, so now, verse 11, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered, gathered, gathered much had nothing left over, whoever, lacked little, whoever lacked, gathered little had no lack. And so what he's addressing there is in some instances there are people who thought they would have money, and they don't. Their ship didn't come in, their crop failed, whatever. Hey, that's fine. God's not expecting you to keep that pledge you made if you don't have the money, okay? If the will to give was there, God's not gonna hold you to that. But then I think he turns to the other group, where sure, I mean, if you're sitting here and your crop didn't fail, but these three guys did, now maybe you're thinking, maybe, maybe I wanna put some of that in the barn in case my crop fails next year. Um, and then he points out, look, let your current abundance be for their current need and lack, and trust that next year, if your crop fails, someone else's abundance will care for you. And then he quotes the manna principle, which is frightening, because how much manna could you gather? One day's. So it's the levels to which I think the New Testament would encourage us that we're free to give is crazy high. Um, and yet Paul won't command it. He won't guilt it. He wants it to be done freely. A little later in chapter 8, he comes back to this topic. Um, no, 9. 9 again. Chapter 9. Um, let's start in verse 5. So I thought it necessary to urge you brothers to go on ahead of you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it might be ready as a willing gift and not as an exaction. And it's like the third time he said, voluntary, willing. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. So the sense was like, yeah, if you, do, I, do I have to give more? You don't have to, but it's your loss. <laughs> you know, God's got the, the cattle on a thousand hills. It's not like, oh, his plans won't work because you didn't chip in. But <laughs> you're missing the point if that's where you're coming at it. Don't you realize the immense 
rewards God's offered up. You know, um, he says this, uh, whoever sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So that's a more sort of... So on the one hand... There's this, we're told repeatedly, there's this great danger that money is going to slowly grab a hold of our hearts and the security that it offers will begin to replace the security of the gospel. Um, and we're told in, back in Luke, if you'll turn back to Luke now, um, 11 or 12. Um, get there, I'll find out. Ooh, 12. Um, we're told something very similar to the rich young ruler, Okay. But again, the same logic is one of comfort and exhortation and trust God. Remember the analogy I used of you're playing Monopoly. And partway through the game, um, this rich businessman you're playing with stops and says, hey, for every dollar of Monopoly money, well, say, say one guy goes bankrupt. He lands on boardwalk as a hotel and he owes $2,000. And this other player says, tell you what, for every dollar you give that Monopoly money dollar, you give that poor guy who's went bankrupt, I'll give you $1,000 U.S. cash right here, right now. You would not be saying, so how much do I have to give? <laughs> You'd be saying, here, You'd be doing what the Thessalonians did. No, Please, no, we want to give, give more. more. We want to give more. We want to give more. I'll give him extra so the next time he lands. <laughs> right, right, right. That's exactly what we're doing. That's, that's the sort of metaphor. Um, because he, he, has, he tells the story of the man who has the barn, and he has the good harvest, and he is poor towards God, and he dies. And the whole point is you're not taking it with you. Um, you can stack up all your securities and have your 401k and all that stuff in place, and you can have a heart attack, and, and God can take you out. Um, and then he tells them, like, look, I know the whole logic of why he points them to the birds and the flowers is we're afraid, and money promises to take care of us. And he says, don't be afraid, right? So pick it up in verse 22. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious. But your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. He doesn't say don't work and don't do stuff, but don't, don't be driven with fear by that. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than birds? So one thing, trust that God's going to take care of you, especially if you're committed to doing his will, if you're seeking his kingdom. Um, then he points them to the lilies. Um, and then the contrast is we ought to be living differently than the world. Um, so verse 29, or 28, the end of 28. O you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So the contrast here is our, our working and our saving and our approach to and what we do with money should not look like the nations in the world. It shouldn't. It should be different. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide for yourself with money bags that not grow old, with treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And again, so Jesus is freeing us up to do this. He's trying to deal with the fear I'd be afraid to do this because what if, like, I don't have something tomorrow? 
And he says, no, God's, God's going to provide for you and care for you. And then he tells them, this is how you get treasure in heaven. And with that logic, he's, he's just trying to coax them into seeing a picture where they're excited to do this. And again, if your response is, okay, but seriously, how much do I have to give? You're not getting it. Any more than the person at the Monopoly table isn't getting it. We're like, okay, so how much do I have to give this guy? Did you hear... <laughs> You know what I mean? So you're free. There is no law. Paul makes it clear. It says you decide in your own heart. There's a freedom. Yet make no mistake, what you do with your money will evidence what you think and what you believe. And what you believe and think about your money, that does matter. Right? So it matters, but it's not a matter of rules. It's a matter of your heart. And, and so it's, it's tough. I don't believe we're under a New Testament command to tithe. If, if that was the matter, Paul would be like, okay, it's 10%. He's like, no, it's, it's the Lord's prospered you. I know people who are just barely getting by, and I'm like, look, give of other things, your time, your service. Right now, you can't afford to give anything. You got bills. You're in debt, you know? Um, I, I don't think there's a New Testament command to tithe, but what we have is this model of sacrificial giving, which if you get a vision for it, you're not asking questions like how, how much you have to give. You're asking, like, can I give more? You're finding ways to, to do that. So it's, it's, it's a tough subject to hit briefly, but you asked me with plenty of time on the clock. Um, so back to the rich ruler. Understand when you come to Christ, you have no claim on anything anymore. You're, you, you've, that's the first point, which means if God makes it clear to you one way or another that something needs to go, it needs to go. There's no untouchable section that I get to keep this for me. Yeah, there's no me zone. Exactly. And then the rest of the New Testament's saying, if you're really picking up what I'm putting down, you're going to be looking to free up more money to give because of the blessings that's accruing to you. you know? and, and so that's, that's what should be happening. If, you, if you're sitting here and that's not where you're at, um, ask God to show you the beauty of what's the beauty and the blessing and giving and ask him to open your heart to that um, and consider whether you're putting your trust in your money. But I, I don't have any law or rules for you, you know? Um, we don't check on how people give. Um, so I got no idea what you guys do. I want to keep it that way. <laughs> um, so. Appreciate the answer. Okay. Six minutes. Oh, Lois needs a microphone. This isn't a question, but it's just a remark from the message a couple weeks ago about our childlike faith. Mm. And that was so, so helpful to me um, to realize that it's not childish, but childlike. And I thought that you did such a good job ex explaining it. So well, Thank you. Thank you, Lois. I appreciate that. Anybody else? Oh, Carol Hardy. Okay, I know you're going to be able to give me a really dogmatic answer to this, but this goes back to the, the prior question and the stuff you were talking about with yes. Zach there. But um, the, um, the thought of, of uh, preparing for when you're old and when you're retired and when you have to have a funeral and all the stuff that uh, my wife can testify that I never thought about any of these things until I started to get old myself. And uh, I, I did a really poor job of stocking away money, for example. I just, you know, when she married me, I'd, I'd work for the Navigators for, for about nothing and, and didn't have any money stored away, and, you know, and 
didn't even really have a good job, you know, because I, that's, that was my mentality. And so how does it fit in that when you do get old and want to retire and you start having health problems, you don't want to, for example, saddle your children right. with, with your debts and your incredible expenses and right. all that stuff. And how, how do you decide how much, I know it's different every one generation to the next, but how do you decide how much to, to store away without being uh, building more barns and stuff like that? I think you need wisdom, and I think yeah. you... That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> sure. I, I, think, I think it's just a matter of joy, right? I mean, so you may not be aware of any urgent need. But let me tell you the story of my friend Chris, who is listening to the podcast metaphorically as we speak. Um, I think that stuff's great. The, I think the test is going to come when you, when you see other things, and then the temptation to dip into those securities will reveal where your heart's at. Um, my friend Chris worked, uh, had his 401k. He was in church in New Hampshire. And um, it's great. I think that's fine. If, if you've got extra money and you don't see any urgent needs and you think, hey, I'm going to put this away for my retirement for the future, that's great. You know what I mean? I think the challenge is when you say Corbin. Remember Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they locked money away from caring for their parents. Oh, this, this is ministry. This is a ministry house. Sorry, Mom, you can't come here. Corbin, right? Well, there's a young lady in the church in New Hampshire who uh, needed um, legal defense. She wanted to get on bail so she could earn money for legal defense. There was uh, her, her infant daughter had died, and they were challenging that they were charging that her boyfriend was the one who did it, and there was some debate of whether the father did it or the boyfriend did it. Well, she had recently just come to faith, been baptized in that church, and was saying, help, I, I, I need to get out and earn some money for the defense. Um, my friend Chris, who was a new believer at the time as well, remembered Jesus saying, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And with no one talking to him, the Holy Spirit just putting on his heart, he did this mental math. If it were me, would I dip into my 401k to bail myself out? Absolutely. So that's what he did. I only bring that up, not to say everyone else had to do that, but there were a couple of people in that church who told him he was being a fool. Because you're going to get taxed and pay penalties. And after all, she's probably guilty. And and it was just operating, simple, childlike faith. To me, it's still a beautiful thing of, hey, I'm supposed to treat everybody. God put that on his heart, and he did it. You know what I mean? So it's not a command for anybody. All I'm trying, I'm trying to come and free people. My assumption is most people, because of, of the financial wisdom of our age, are putting in a four. And there's nothing fundamentally wrong with that. I want to free people. If you see something of need, don't be afraid to help. Don't feel like, oh, that would be foolish. That would be imprudent. Jesus commends the widow who gives her last might, right, at the temple. Um, so, yeah, if you're dipping into your 401k to, to go out to eat and stuff, that's folly. And I'm not saying don't save. It's just when you see things that look beautiful to invest in, Jesus is freeing you to invest aggressively in the kingdom in that sense. So I think it's starting the other way. Assume... Assume those things, and then as you, it's your joy, and as it's your desire, go do it. That, that's, that's all I'm saying. If you were to get a desire in your heart to help orphans in, in Africa, and you were to empty out your entire, entire retirement savings into that over time, I wouldn't have a word to say against you, and I'd be indignant at the person who did. I don't have a command for you to do that, but if that's the desire of your heart, Jesus is saying, you're not going to outgive God. You're not going to regret that decision. So it's working from the other direction. It's assuming 
we're looking out for ourselves and that that's not fundamentally wrong. And then he's saying, hey, there's this joy and there's this promise from God that you're not going to re regret doing that. You are storing up treasure in heaven. So it's more of a matter of joy. Um, are there things you're excited to give to? Are there things you'd love to invest in? And from that perspective, you can trust God with that. that this may not be the answer you're looking for, uh, but that's my answer. Anyone There's always a lot of stuff that we could, as Christians, can really get joy out of. Yes. A lot of things. Yes. But at what point do we empty out all of our uh, savings so that uh, the next generation has to bail us out? When you I want guess. to. Yeah. I, I realize that. I'm trying to pin you down. Lee's got something to say, I can tell him. It's wisdom. You pray for wisdom. You ask yeah. God and assume that he's giving you wisdom. And you, you don't just say, oh, I don't need anything. Well, you know, I, I think of my mom and dad. They went to the mission field during my dad's most productive years if he would have been staying in his business and worked for peanuts, basically, which is, they, I mean, they didn't even work for it. They just paid their expenses. But God took care of them. And now, you know, my dad's gone, but mom's okay. And, and God did see them yeah. through things by providing weird, like their house burned down. And you think, how did that help? Well, the insurance company paid my dad to rebuild his house. So he made a nice chunk yeah. of change doing that. And that has helped them over the yeah. years. The thing is, just use wisdom, trust God, be in his word. It all, you know, right. yeah. I'm just saying, if you look at the Macedonians... Whatever, whatever financial principles you've got has got their room for the Macedonians, that they're not doing something foolish, wicked, and um, negligent. They're in poverty, and they give beyond their ability, and they ask permission to do that. And Paul doesn't call that folly and short-sightedness. He calls it the grace of God. And so, by all means, um, as you have excess and you don't see anything Save and prepare for the future, absolutely. But if you want to give, by all means, do it. That, that's all I'm saying. I just, there's a tightrope here where we start condemning the Macedonians. Now, they're kind of foolish. Don't they realize their kids are going to, like, I don't want to go there. Um, so I, here's, I'll close with this. Proverbs 19:17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. I don't think you're ever going to regret being generous. I don't think you're going to be like, man, why were we so generous and now we're stuck? You know, um, I don't think that's going to happen. So anyway, we are done. Our time is up. We'll see you here next week.